Good day to you, friends. And I'm going to call you friends because if you've made it this far or are listening to this, surely we're friends, right? This is Amy Clarkson, and I've been reading from my book, Simple, How Kids Help Us Understand God. And this is week 10, chapter 10, and it's on grace. I think of all the topics there is to cover, this has to be one of the most important to really grasp and spend time understanding and sitting with because it really makes all the difference. It's so important to get this in our being early on. Let's get started. Chapter 10, Grace. We've covered quite a few theological topics that can stir up questions within ourselves, within our faith community, and within a secular world. Many religions have been born to answer these questions of pain, autonomy, judgment, blessings, and hope. Other world faiths teach beliefs that at times mimic truths in Christianity and at other times seem to contradict. But if you had to pick out the one thing about Christianity that makes it unique to all other religions, it would be grace. What all the major world religions set out to do through their existence is to help humanity become better versions of themselves. All of them have an endpoint or destination, and though the names of this endpoint differ, at the core, the end game in all faiths is about righteousness righteousness. Let's be honest. Who is ready to call it a day on listening now that this outdated word has come up? Please stick with me. You know, we don't talk a lot in our daily conversations about righteousness. So first, we need to understand what the word means. At its center, righteousness is about fulfilling the standard of what is right and good. I don't know about you, but when I hear the word righteousness, I automatically have this visual of a giant magnifying glass coming out of the sky to start finding all of my flaws, which makes me want to run away. To be able to understand how differently Christianity handles the answer to being righteous, we need to look at how the other major religions view righteousness. For Buddhists, Following the Noble Eightfold Path earns you righteousness, or the ability to end suffering and live in complete peace. The emphasis is having a right view, right resolve, right speech, right conduct, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right meditation. Hindus also follow a path to righteousness. And dharma, as they call it, is achieved by living one's life according to the codes and conduct described in the Hindu scriptures. The ten essential rules for observing dharma are patience, forgiveness, self-control, honesty, sanctity, control of senses, reason, learning, truthfulness, and absence of anger. A Muslim is considered righteous when they submit completely to Allah's will. Obedience to Allah's commands and acting on whatever he legislates 
is what makes you righteous and gains you prosperity in this world and the next. The five pillars of Islam, which are considered mandatory, are faith, prayer, charity, fasting, and pilgrimage to Mecca. We are familiar from studying the Old Testament what the Jews deemed as righteousness, which is both being a part of God's covenant as well as keeping the law that that covenant outlined. As long as the Jews uphold the Torah, they are considered righteous. And the Torah is the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Christianity is no different in regard to speaking about and advocating for righteousness. The significant distinction is in how to achieve that righteousness. In all the other world religions that we just mentioned, the responsibility resides in you. You must do the right thing, which, as outlined above, differs based on what religion you follow. Christianity alone takes the responsibility off of you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 in the NIV states this, in quotes, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, end quote. Did you catch that? Christ is our righteousness. He followed all of the law, the right paths, was obedient, etc. He was the ultimate righteous person. And then he let his life stand in place of our inability to ever live a perfect life. Here is where our conversation turns from righteousness to grace. The distinction between all of the other world religions and Christianity is even more significant than the idea that someone else did the hard work of achieving righteousness for us. I mean, that is incredible in and of itself. But what the concept of grace explains is that Christ did that without expecting any repayment. Grace is defined as undeserved favor. He took your place, even though you didn't deserve the gift, and demands nothing in return except acknowledgement and acceptance of the gift. In our society, we live by retributive, distributive, and procedural justice. Each of these types of justice is different, but all are concerned with fairness. Retributive justice says people get what they deserve. Distributive justice is economically making sure everyone gets their fair share. And procedural justice is making decisions according to fair treatment. Grace stands in conflict with these forms of justice because, first and foremost, grace isn't fair. Because grace isn't natural in a justice-oriented society, it can be tough to comprehend. Thus, when we hear about God's grace offered to us, usually we find ourselves tipping to one of two extremes. 
Some of us secretly think we do deserve grace. I mean, we're worthy. And some of us secretly cannot believe we deserve grace. We're unworthy. I'm hoping that as we look at parents and children, we can more fully understand what it is to experience and embrace grace. Since the definition of grace is undeserved favor, we need to look no further than at young children to see grace in action. In their infancy, children can do very little for themselves. In their helpless state, they cannot do anything to earn the right to be fed, held, and cleaned. When I would wake up at two in the morning to feed my daughter, it wasn't because I had kept track of her behavior during the day and decided that she deserved it. I woke and fed her because I loved her and I wanted what was best for her, which at that moment was to have her tummy filled. Some may say it was my duty. That's why I fed my daughter. True, it was my responsibility. But had it been only a chore, it would have looked much different. Likely, if it were just an item to cross off with no relational aspect, I would have groaned and even complained audibly to her for waking me up. I would not have been very gentle and may not have held her, but just have propped up a bottle. I remember very distinctly sitting on my couch holding my daughter when she was six days old and examining every minute detail of her face. As I sat there, I thought to myself, I would do absolutely anything for this child. Yet she has done nothing to earn that response from me, except merely exist. It was the first time I realized what love without condition was. Favor unearned. I grant grace to my children daily. That trend of feeding my children continues. I still feed them every day, even when they scrunch up their noses and say, what is this, in disgusted tones. I drive them to school and events. I supply them with clothes to wear. They have a home and a place to sleep, despite not contributing economically to any of this. When my son was in first grade, the fad was pedometers. Over the Christmas holiday, it seemed half of his class were sporting some variety of a step counter and challenging each other in competition. My son wanted to participate, but I told him he'd have to pay for one himself. I searched online and found an inexpensive step counter for $10. He did some odd jobs and saved up and finally bought it. His excitement was palpable the first day he took it to school. It had a clip to secure it to your clothes, but my son was insistent. He wanted it in his pocket. You can guess where this is heading. That very first night of owning a pedometer, he lost it somewhere outside our home. He was devastated, and the tears he cried that night were heavy. My husband and I could have gone the route of giving him what he deserved. We easily could have used it as a teaching moment and encouraged him to save up again and next time be more careful with his belongings. Instead, we opted for a different lesson, grace. We even used those words. We want to give you grace. Despite not deserving it, 
we are going to get you a replacement on us. My kids do the wrong thing quite often. <laughs> they fight with each other. They're caught lying. They leave huge messes. They break things. They argue and resist chores. If I based my affection and response outwardly to them based on their behavior, they'd be miserable because they would get very little from me. However, my love for them is unconditional. I treat them not as they deserve, but with grace. You may be fortunate to have had an abundance of this type of love in your life. Typically, though, the kind of love we encounter is conditional. The more we've experienced conditional love, the harder it is to accept pure, unconditional love. I asked my family once if they had just one thing they wish they would have understood or known about earlier in life what it would be. Without hesitation, though said in different ways, each person talked about wishing they had grasped the concept of grace earlier. The best way for me to think of it is this. There is nothing I can do to make God love me more, and there is nothing I can do to make God love me less. I feel this wholeheartedly with my children, and God feels this wholeheartedly for you and me. And here is what is incredible. God's scale for grace is infinitely more than mine is as a parent. While it may help to think about grace in the way parents love and provide for children despite their children's deservedness and behavior, God's perfect grace is far more lavish. I use an allegory to help me grasp it. Let's say you committed a crime, an intentional, nasty crime. You were rightfully accused, and the punishment for your crime was death. And so you sat in your prison cell, awaiting the fateful date. There was also a noble at this time, with vast amounts of wealth and power. He had one heir, whom he loved very much, who was set to take over the family business and inherit everything one day. The morning of execution came. You sat in your cell in anticipation, when suddenly the jailer appeared with the noble's son. I'm here to take your place, said the son. With that, someone opened the cell door and set you free, while the heir was locked up to die for your crime. Ready to weep at your redemption as you stepped out into freedom, there was a hand on your shoulder. The jailer was there with more news. The nobleman has asked for you, as you are to be the new heir. All he has is now yours. Far-fetched? Well, the book of Galatians talks about this. First, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, we read, in quotes, But Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. 
That's from the New Living Translation. And then later on in Galatians chapter 4, verse 5, in quotes, God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children, in quotes, also in the New Living Translation. Grace isn't just avoiding punishment. It is elaborate love. Christ didn't just come to redeem, but to restore as well. With our children, we experience grace not only by letting them off the hook when they deserve a consequence, but also by providing them with more than they could ever expect. The story of the prodigal son is one of the ways Jesus tried to teach us about grace. You can read the whole story in the book of Luke, chapter 15. In essence, it is a story of a son who squandered his father's wealth and came back home expecting to be made a servant. His father did the unexpected and welcomed him back, not as a servant, but as a son. That his father even agreed to let him back home was the redemption part. But grace provided restoration as well. And he was welcomed as a son and heir once again. In the parable Jesus told, one of the striking things he mentions is the fact that the father, once seeing his lost son in the distance, goes running to him. Running to greet someone was unheard of in that culture and symbolized how eager and extravagant the father's love was. It reminds me that grace is often entwined with hope. Hope as we discussed in an earlier chapter, comes before action. And grace, in this case, is the response. If we can think about how we raise children with unconditional love that doesn't force them to earn every aspect of affection and caregiving, maybe it can help us understand how God loves us. There is nothing my children can do to make me love them more. And nothing they can do to make me love them less. I do not base my love on their merit. My love started at conception, and I expect it will never end. It's the same with God and you. You guys, that's it. We have reached the end of the book. Ten weeks, ten chapters ending with what I think is the most important concept of it all. I sure appreciate those who have followed along. Hopefully something resonated along the way. Be sure to pass the link on to somebody you think might enjoy one of these topics or thinking about it in a different way. And if there's something else in the future, another podcast, I'll be sure to let the followers of this podcast know. Otherwise, let blessings and peace abound. Thanks for listening.